Hello and welcome to the Man City podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Dennis Chewer, a man who's had no fewer than three stints at this football club, twice as a player and then again in 1998 as a director. Dennis had a unique playing career, with his spells at City split up by a successful stint at the New York Cosmos. He was a genuine pioneer, but it was his time as director that I really wanted to get to know about. Why did Joe Royal get sacked and who were the difficult characters in Kevin Keegan's squad? I invited him to a somewhat noisy CFA for a chat to try and get to know a little bit more about his unique association with Manchester City. A year before joining City, he'd been part of the Sunderland side who had shocked English football by winning the FA Cup as a second-tier side. I started by asking him how that move materialised. Well, again, you know, I was fairly ambitious and I've been fairly aspirational all my career, all my life, and uh, at the end of the, the run, the cup run, the following season... Um, we didn't really add any further quality and Bob Stoker was the manager but Bob Stoker was used to managing players on a shoestring I was just we got knocked out of the FA Cup early on the next year in the year 73-74 year and we hadn't bought quality and I was 20, just coming up to 24 and I knew if I waited another year I'm going to be 26 before I get to the first division which was obviously the prime league in the, uh, in the country and I just had to make a decision I asked for a transfer before Christmas uh, Prior to the the, um, the the deadline, then the uh, it brought me down on the Sunday before the deadline. I was asked to uh, meet at Roker Park Sunday morning. I hadn't got a clue where I was going, who was speaking, um, because in those there was no agents. The press weren't as aware of what was going on. And again, transfers weren't such a big thing. Then spoke to Ron Saunders a couple of hours, and then Mickey Horswell and I drove down the next day on the Monday down the main road. What, what do you make of the role of? a modern-day agent, because they, they, they come in for some criticism, don't they? And it seems that there's, there's not that many um, good ones. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think because there's, there's that much money in the trough, there's a lot of greedy, greedy agents around. And I think footballers do need advisors. You know, that's the difference. There's, there's two categories for me. There's agents and advisors. Agents are in for the money. Advisors are in for the long term. You know, advising the player, not only what, what happens on the field but also what happens off the field in advising him and also in my view developing as a person because the youngsters the players got the rest of his life to live and I've always said that football is a springboard into the rest of your life you know you have to make sure the springboard's strong solid and it gives you uh, an ability to live the rest of your life and not so much in comfort but certainly develops you as a player and whatever challenges come to you off the field because the easiest part of your life as a footballer is when you have to play football the hardest part is when you finish your career what do you do then? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And these are the important parts of uh, developing the, per- the people. And I don't think agents do that, you know, because agents, in essence, they're only after the commission off the next contract, whereas advisors can structure your, the whole of your, um, your finances and domestically and, and beyond football. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to a young footballer today then? You have to be prepared to uh, um, give more than you think you, than they think you do. Because I have a little a phrase which I, I spoke to um, Nicky Weaver when, he, when I was a director. He was having a bit of a problem with, um, with one or two antics he got up off the field. And, and, and I went to see him on one Saturday morning. And he says, well, Mr. Stewart, because I was obviously I was a director, he says, you know, I just feel a bit alone. I want, things I want to do with my girlfriend. He says, I can't, I've got a girlfriend. And he says, when mates ring me, would you want to go out? Just go out. And I said, Nicky, the, the, big, the big thing you've got to look at, to be one of the best... You have to be different from the rest. You have to be able to stand aside of the of the crowd and and stand up and be be uh, be strong, be aspirational. Um, and that's what you have to do. It's, it's difficult to youngsters when there's so much money thrown at them so early, and they're way above the uh, station of their father, their parents, and their grandparents. And all of a sudden, the usual what I classify as hangers-on uh, come on just purely and simply to be with you because of what you're earning and who you are not because of the person you are. So your time at City then, I mean, the highlight of that first stint was obviously the, the goal in the final. I'm sure you're fed up with talking about it, but I just want to know, like, as, a, as a mere mortal, someone who's never played the game at that level, how, how does it feel to not only score a goal as important as that, but a goal as brilliant as that? Because that has gone down as one of the great cup final goals, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something, which it, it's something which I call your, your lock-up in your treasure box. You know, you, you play your game, I think the average playing term of a player now I think it was done by the PFA is between 8 and 12 years depending on injuries and such like 
So, you know, it's only a portion of your life. So, you know, whatever you achieved, your personal achievements, you just wrap up in your treasure box and you keep them for, for life. They're yours, you, you own them. Um, and then, you know, you, especially the way I did it, because it was a spectacular girl. It was in front of 100,000 people. It was at Wembley. But, you know, if you think beyond that, it was, it was a personal achievement. But also you win that for your team. You win it for your, 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 your club and for your supporters because... I've always been someone who's right to supporters and the club and the team spirit, and that's so essential in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a sort of a, a arena, of, of the, the football arena. That's always essential. You, you, you've got to see the big picture, and you need those supporters. Without a question, I was always been related to the supporters. Um, when I came to Manchester City, I was the, the president of the Junior Blues. Every Sunday morning before me, my, my wife and I had children. I'd be there Sunday morning on the meetings and take to see the kids and do things with the kids. and. In those early years, that development, that uh, Junior Blues organisation, sustained Manchester City in, in the very, very uh, low days, um, low years, in fact, um, when we were struggling. But because of what we did in, in the early stages with the development of the youngsters and got them to bleed blood, but blue blood, um, sustained that, uh, that week period. Did you think after that League Cup final that that would be the last trophy City would win for 35 years. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I left again. You know, same, same reason I left, the reason I left Sunderland. Because Bob Stoker wasn't, didn't, I didn't feel he was going to take the club on to the next level. I just didn't think we were moving on to the next level. And to, to include me personally, because I'd, I'd had a couple of injuries, a little hamstring, and when I came back, I wasn't in the first team, I was on the bench. And I was 28, I was still in the England squad, and I felt that's not, that really is not, uh, not where I want to be at this stage of my career. You know, if I'm not... Right, call about in your in a football team, there should be a core group of players. And I think Alex Ferguson, you know, he had a core with the class of '92 plus Roy Keane, and those seven players under underpinned his dressing room for ten years. You know, and, and he added a different kind of qualities. Ronaldo, Jap Stams, Andy Coles, all the different additional ones he brought in. But he had that core, that core, and that's what we needed. And 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 I felt I was part of that core. Um, and didn't seem, the manager didn't seem to have that. Um, so I, again, you know, I thought, well, if, if you don't want me, I'll, if you don't think I'm a, I'm a start regular starter, I'll, I'll leave. Again, same principle, same reason why I left Sunderland. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel. First of all, the club was advancing, and secondly, I wasn't advancing as well. Um, because I mentioned earlier about aspirations, you know, the game is not. You're not in the game long. And you have to be able to achieve things, to win things, and get that treasure box as packed as full as possible with all your achievements and all your honours. And, um, and it didn't happen, so I asked for a transfer. And they granted it and sat around and see what happened. And this is in about the November time of 77. And then uh, I get a call for Tony Book. He says, uh, agreed terms of Man United for you. Uh, want you to meet Dave Sexton and Les Olive. So I actually met up with Dave Sexton and Les Olive in, in Tony Book's house in Sale and spoke to them about uh, moving to Manchester United. Um, spoke to them and as it happens, what influenced that decision was that that evening I was playing in a pro-celebrity squash game at a place called um, uh, Drosden, I forget the name of the squash centre, um, which had been organised by Freddie Griffiths because it was, it was two pros playing and two celebrities and it was John Cleese against um, Leonard Rossiter. John Cleese from Fawlty Towers and Leonard Rossiter from Rising Damp. And uh, John Cleese had pulled a calf muscle in. My, my coach at the time was Bill Taylor. And him and I both played squash and we were going to this, watch this tournament, that uh, competition in the evening. And uh, he, Bill knew where I was in the afternoon because I was replacing John Cleese against Leonard Rossiter. Um, so we went there. Carriages, it was carriages. The, the squash that was called carriages and drawers. And, and um, I went there in the, went in the evening, met up with Bill, and Bill knew where I'd been in the afternoon. And, and he said, "How'd it go?" I said, "Fine, yeah, fine. I'm just going to think about it. Don't don't have to move house, you know. Been a lot of there was a lot of pluses." Um, and he said, "Just answer me two questions." He says, first of all, are, are they paying more than we are?" I said, "Yeah, a little bit." He says, "Do they have a better team than we have at the moment?" I says. No, not quite. He says, well, why are you moving? And I thought, yeah, you're right. So I rang United from, from the reception of carriages to call the United deal off and then uh, went on the squash court and even got hammered by Leonard Rossiter. Was there a, a, a fear that... You, you, you talked about your relationship with the fans. Did, was that in the back of your mind that perhaps if you went to United, then 
that might do some damage in that yeah, area. Yeah, absolutely. Well, without question, you're, you're, you're tossing these things all around your mind. The, the benefits with you get a little bit more money, you're not moving house, your family's settled. Um, it was an easy move. United was starting to develop, um, competing against them. And again, in the back of my mind, you know, I've been a part of this this club and this, these fans for so many years, you know, and we'd had a, a rapport and a, I like to think a love between the pair of us, you know, fans and myself. And it was a, an influence. In fact, it, it, it really didn't, it really wasn't just the money and the team, you know, the, 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 the relationship with the supporters just made me just pull out. What about Peter Swales? What was your dealings and relationship with him like? Because I speak to a lot of people and his name crops up because obviously he had such a long association with the club and there are a varying sort of interpretations. I mean, what, what, what was your kind of assessment of him as a man and, and, and the way he operated? Well, he was, he was an entrepreneur. He was the old style entrepreneur, you know, and um, he did a lot of good things for Manchester City because he was on the International Selection Committee. So I'm sure he would be flying the Man City flag and a lot of... Uh, team selection issues and um, I never had a problem with him you know he's an entrepreneur and you, what you've got to understand that sometimes you have to see the big picture and where he's coming from looking from for the club's perspective I was disappointed when he said yeah you can go to be perfectly honest and uh, but you know he felt the money he was going to get for me you know they had young Peter Barnes coming up so he was, he was looking purely and simply whilst him and I had a good relationship he was looking in the interest of the football club he was going to get good money for me and he had a replacement um, and Peter Barnes coming through and he maybe he saw further down the line um, so I, I never had, I kept in, had a good relationship even when I came back from uh, uh, from New York and it was through him that he, that he persuaded me to come back to Manchester City um, when I did come back and then even when I stopped playing I did have a good relationship with him but you know you've got to understand that personal views uh, sometimes get distorted you have to be able to see the big picture understand more than just what you personally, personally would like. The year after you won the League Cup for City, you finished second uh, in the table, just a point behind Liverpool. Is that would you would you rank that as your biggest disappointment? Yeah, very much so. Even though you know we, we were always just because in those days it was two points for a win, not three. We were always behind them, um, and you know we did push them to a degree, but not as as much as we we would have liked to have done. Um, they they all seemed to be a comfortable first. Um, and we were trying desperately hard to be second, um, but it was again give us another another year in Europe. You know, after the League Cup in the '76 and '77, so we had two or three years in Europe. Um, again, didn't didn't really do ourselves justice in Europe, um, which I would like to have developed a bit more. But you know, '77 second, but second is nowhere really. You know, it's and and to be perfectly honest, we were a very poor second. Yeah. And then the following year, obviously, these further disappointments, City finished mid-table, and then, and then you end up leaving. And this is a fascinating chapter of your life and career, isn't it? Can you tell me how the move to, to New York came about? Well, it came after asking for a transfer, and obviously after turning Man United down, because I'd had a contact from a guy who I knew from London who was doing a bit of uh, agency work in, in America, a guy called Ken Adam. He just rang me um, and he said, you know, the Cosmos are just reviewing because I didn't know the time, but Pelé had just retired and they needed another forward player. And the coach of the Cosmos was a guy called Eddie Fermani, who was more a European base, with a played for Charlton, Italian descent, and there was more European players. He was looking at European players and had a call and said, would you be interested? And I said, wow, yeah, let's look at it. Because we were getting loads of coverage from the North American Soccer League here in, in England. Uh, Cosmos were bringing 40-odd thousand people to the games and there was all fantastic. Beckenbauer had gone there, Carlos Alberto had gone there, Giorgio Canali, a very famous Italian centre forward, had gone there and they were starting to pick off some of the cream of the European players to come and play there. Uh, even though they were sort of 31, 32, it was just to get the thing going. And I felt a bit like a pioneer. Um, you were the first English player, weren't you, to go out there? Well, I was the first currently England international but before that, strange enough, after the Man United one, I got another call from a journalist friend of mine saying a friend of mine would like to speak to you, see if you're interested. Before this Cosmos thing came out yeah. in, in big time, and it was, uh, I knew who he was talking about because he was a friend of Brian Clough. So he said, would you take a call? This was after the Man United one. Would you take a call? I said, yeah, OK, because the thing with the Cosmos, they didn't need me till February, March. 
and this was like November, December of the 77, they didn't meet him because their season was April, summer season, April to September. So I said, OK, and I'm still exploring because it hadn't been confirmed with the Cosmos. We had negotiated, it hadn't been done. It was just a lot of talk and a lot of um, telephone calls backwards and forwards. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll talk to him. So then I got a call from Peter Taylor. And Peter asked me two questions. He said, Dennis, we were very much interested in Nottingham Forest. I want you to ask the two questions. First of all, would you like to play for Nottingham Forest? And second, how much do you want? And I got chatting. We had a good chat. I said, Peter, i just got this thing about the Cosmos. It hasn't been... Hasn't been confirmed yet, but I'd still like to think it over. You know, would you mind giving me 24 hours? He said, no, no problem. So he was great on the phone, Peter. And he rang me, as he, uh, to his word, the next night. And I said, no, this Cosmos thing is just, it's just got me, uh, just something, it's a challenge. It's a new challenge. It's, I feel like a pioneer. It's something new. It's something different. I think I experienced it, you know. And he said, no problem, son. And we had a good 20-minute chat about football generally, you know, and, Thank you very much, and off we went. Still hoping that the uh, the Man United or the new or the, the, the Nottingham Forest thing wouldn't go away if the Cosmos thing fell fell flat on its face. So, and I got another call, and then just after the New Year, um, just before the New Year, sorry, um, City had agreed terms, two hundred and thirty-five thousand pounds for me to go to the Cosmos. So I met them. I went. In, sorry, I went down to London with my wife and I, because um, Armit and Nestle Urtigan, they owned Atlantic Records part of the WAA uh, um, music group and uh, I went down to see them in their, their uh, <laughs> big luxury pad in uh, in London, it was like an interview I walked in, my wife and I was sat in, in the waiting room and I get a call in as I'm going down the corridor to the meeting room there's a group of lads and he was interviewing a pop group before me so was, I was getting interviewed by a pop impresario um, and we got chatting with uh, Armit Hurt again he said, yeah, we're said, you know, you're quality and all this. And he, said, he started questioning my um, ambition and what I want to do. And I just stopped him there. I said, I'm a, just, just, just to clarify things, I said, I'm 28. I'll be the first current England international to go full-time because Peter Swales uh, had tried to persuade me to go summer season only. And unfortunately, if anybody, if anybody who knows me, you know, I can't do things by half. You know, I'm, I'm either going to commit it, fully committed or not fully committed. I can't do a half and half job. And I didn't think that was fair to either. You know, I would have made a bit more money, but at this stage, that's, that's not desperately important. I was going to make plenty going to New York. And, um, and I said, I'm, I want to know how ambitious the Cosmos are. I said, you asked me to give up everything at home, England International, successful club, 20 years in my peak. I'm going to, the next four or five years are going to be my peak years. Um, how ambitious are the Cosmos? Why should I come and join you? You know. Um, so you started interviewing him essentially. In essence, yeah, <laughs> turned the, turn the tables on him, and I think he was impressed by it. You know, because I was honest, I was open, um, and you could see I was I wasn't going to be there for the ride. Um, went home, came back, then the, the, the club agreed terms, uh, and then I went down to well, they came down. The big heavy hitters came down to. Uh, with my advisor, you know, agents and advisors, my advisor, Ruben Kay, he was fantastic for me. Um, he was one of the early, the early accountants, stroke agents who looked after players and very, he looked after Bobby Charlton from his first to his last days in, in, in football. Sadly died about 10, 15 years ago. Fantastic advisor, real common sense, fantastic uh, knowledge. And him, and he had a tax advisor, came to his offices in Manchester on Deansgate and there was about six of the... Uh, American Brigade with the big old braces and talking about doing the final deal and we did the final deal um, in the office in Deansgate and then I was a Cosmos player. That decision must have been a really tough one. I mean, Forest, the, the Nottingham Forest story under Brian Clough is one of the, the great well, chapters. Next year, next year they won the, uh, the European, European Cup, Cup. Yeah. yeah, and the next year after that as well. Yeah. So yeah, but you, you know, you, you, can only, you can only make decisions based on the stuff you have in front of you. You know, football is a short, short-term lifespan. You can't, you know, I always talk about football. You can't talk about short, medium, and long-term strategy in football. You've got short-term strategy and maybe, maybe a medium-term, but forget long-term strategies. It's short and medium, and that's it. You know, and that's I've, I've worked at football uh, views on my football career as I have in my business as well. So how did it feel then to be moving out there? And it's a global game now, but probably less so then. And I, I, I've, I've got some great analogies here because when I went, first of all, I got the treat of going out in Concord 
went on Concord. Went down to the, the Dorchester the night before and uh, stayed overnight there, then flew to New York and on Concord. And, and, and a few days before that, JFK Kennedy at the airport had been closed because of the snow. Um, so there was a doubt that I was going to make it with Concord. But, you know, Concord being Concord, as we'd landed in JFK, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. They'd blown all the snow off the, off the runways and taxiways and they were stacked high, the snow was stacked high. And we drove into JFK and then... Um, limousine to the to the city, stayed in the city, and it straight the first night it was unbelievable. We, we just went for a walk outside the hotel that night because we got there sort of late afternoon, and uh, we're just walking down there. There's, there's, a, there's a cab driver, a yellow cab driver, just walked drove him past, and he winds the window down and he shouts out, "Hey, Stuart, are you signing for the Cosmos?" I was absolutely gobsmacked. Literally, I've been I've been in the hotel an hour, I've been in the city an hour. And he guy, so you can tell, you know, there'd been a bit of awareness. But um, so we we did the deal next. But I was the next day went to uh, do the final deal, and because my accountant, my solicitor, Ruben and uh, my my uh, solicitor, they went into a private room to do the final negotiations about tax, about structure, about payment terms. Um, and they just sat my wife and I. And every year the Cosmos used to produce a highlight video, video in those days it was, of the previous season. So they put the 25-minute video on him, sitting watching it. I said to my wife, I said, bloody hell, I'm replacing Pelé here in this team. You know, because Pelé, I see the position he played, and the two lads was a guy called Steve Hunter, who was a young English dad who played, had a great few years there. And Georgia Canale was a centre-forward. I was going to be playing up front with those two, and that's where Pelé played the, the previous three years. So no, no, no pressure there then. Um, and how, does that, how does that feel, replacing one of the... You know, well, he's, been, he's my all-time hero. Yeah. He played in, the, played in, the, in my view... The best national team ever yeah. in the history of football, 1970. Now, when you've got Carlos Alberto, Chazinho, Rivellino, Tostao, Pelé, Gerson, you know, that's, that's the core. The, the best seven players in the world in your team, it helps. And, um, you know, it was just a privilege to, to sort of get amongst them. Did you have any concerns about the quality of the league? Because I know it that that still sort of exists today, doesn't it? With even in the guise of the MLS, that people think that going out there, the pace is going to be slower, or the defending is not going to be quite as good. Did you have any concerns? Yeah, about but it, it was different, um, and the quality that we had was the passing. Franz Beckenbauer insisted on possession. He'd love playing with Pep because I tell you, he would go berserk if you give the possession away. And on AstroTurf, you had to be accurate because the, gra- the grass wouldn't slow the ball down, it would run out of play, so you had to be accurate. Um, so there's other little challenges. Um, and we won the, won the championship my first year, and I was MVP of the playoffs. I had a great playoff season. I had a hamstring the first year, first season, and um, got over that, and then had a great last two thirds of the season, won the championship. I was voted MVP of the playoffs and uh, offensive player of the game, which is the final game. We'll be Tampa Bay in front of 75,000 people at the Giant Stadium. Um, and I got two. And uh, so, I, again, that aspirational treasure box got another couple of little trophies. Oh, not, not little trophies, they were blinking huge, huge trophies. So that's real justification for you to make that kind of bold decision to go out there because you've had success and you've proven yourself to be a quality player and played alongside some of the game's best players as well. Yeah, it was great. And it was a great, it was a fantastic, it was a different experience because in the mid to late 70s, English football was going through a real trouble with uh, violence, the weather, the quality of stadiums. So there's all these areas that English football hadn't moved on. But yeah, you go to America and they've got state-of-the-art stadiums, infrastructure, facilities for supporters. I mean, we used to have... We have it's 48, 47,000 people the two years I was there, and they used to have the tailgate parties before the game because we kicked in the afternoon and all the tailgate parties were out, the barbecues were out because of summer season. It was just a completely different environment. My wife loved it, you know. We had my family, families, got my family coming over both years when I was there. Different mum and dad, Joan's mum and dad, my brother, Joan's sister, you know, friends came and visited us, you know, so it was a complete experience for a lot of different people. So they were owned by Warner, the Cosmos, weren't they? Well, Warner, it was ex- the concept that we have here is exactly what we had in 1977, 78, 79. Except it was right time, right strategy, wrong place. America wasn't ready. Yeah. The strategy, like, you know, we had 13 dis- different nationalities in, the, in, in our dressing room. 
I could speak five languages. Um, because because my status, uh, my visa status, I was a non-resident alien, which meant I could only stay in the country six months in the year. But we were being paid for 12 months, so pre-season, post-season, they take us around the world on exhibition tours, exactly what we're doing now, exactly what the Premier League club, clubs are doing, but all the major clubs are doing now. You can see where they're in the Champions League all around the world. Exactly the same focus. My last tour before I came, came back was in uh, uh, September, October of 79, and I was away for six weeks, played 14 games in eight different countries, Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Japan, Australia. We played eight, eight different countries, 14 games in six weeks. So that idea of buying Galactico-style big-name stars and then taking them around the world, trying to spread the game... Started, started with the Cosmos. It was their yeah. strategy. And, and what they did also, like, for instance, what um, Juventus have done, and they bought Ronaldo, not so much to, to increase the, the, uh, the attendance on the games, but the commercial revenue. Yeah. Cosmos bought Pelé in 1975. 75, 76, 77, three-year deal. They bought his name, used him to promote products. Exactly the same strategy. It's nothing's not it, this. The, nobody's reinvented the wheel. No, it was done with the Cosmos in 1975, six, seven. Had a great strategy, great, fantastic strategy, uh, and that's we went out and they earned money. They were being paid fifty thousand dollars a game, the Cosmos, plus expenses. You know, every single and we went. Let's be fair. We went out in the country, around the world. We were playing the capacity crowd. We had played two games in Indonesia, eighty thousand people. In the two games, we played in the Sydney Sydney Cricket Club, fifty thousand people. You know, we played in, in the National Stadium in Japan, fifty thousand people. You know, it was just it was just unbelievable. That the uh, we were like Hollywood on the road, Hollywood on the road, um, and it was just and me as a, a young boy from a working class uh, East End of Newcastle, it was just a fantastic education, and it was great for my development as a person as well. So, uh, how does the the move to City come about? Was it just a case of your time at the Cosmos had come to a natural conclusion? No, it's exactly the same. I've always said the only the only reason a player moves is the M factor. It's either money or manager. Are they not getting paid enough, or you fall out with the manager? Um, and both my instances gone leaving City. Tony Book decided to go a different way on his team selection, which I didn't agree with. So I leave. The second season of the Cosmos, halfway through the second season, the Eddie Fermani, the European coach was fired and they brought in Professor Mizei, he was South American, friend of Pele's and his, his focus was more on South American players than European players. Yeah. So him and I didn't see eye to eye, so I said oh, if he doesn't want me, I'll, I'll leave and I got an approach from an agent uh, trying to sell me to Derby County I said I don't want, because I just bought an apartment in Bowdoin and um, my wife was pregnant when I came back uh, Christmas time of uh, 1979 so our firstborn was born in April, so we had an apartment in Bowden. Um, so he was born in, in April in Bowden. Uh, so I said, well, you know, well, let's see. And I said, I don't want to go to Derby. I said, I'll stay in the northwest. Um, and he says, well, what about Gordon Lee, Evan? I said, well, ask him. I don't mind. I'll, I'll, I'll just um, decide on what, what opportunities come along. And he, again, he kept trying to sell me to Derby County. I says, I don't want to go to Derby County. Um, pay the same money, pay the same money. I don't, at this late stage... More important to me is where I want to be. So I said to him, I said, listen, forget about it. I says, I'll ring Manchester City. See if they're interested. I was only just turned 30. I was 30 in November. So I wasn't, and I was always looked after myself. So I rang Peter Swales. I said, Peter, what do you think? He says, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I might be interested. I said, well, let me just tell you. I says, because it changed a lot of the, the team from what I left to when I came back. Um, so I says, listen, I need to have a relationship with a coach. I says, he brought Malcolm Allison back. I said, I want a meeting with Malcolm. If Malcolm doesn't want me, the deal's off. So Malcolm came to my, my house in my apartment in Bowden and uh, just sat down. And just, I says, Malcolm, just before we go, I says, there's two Malcolm Allisons I know. I says, the one that Colin Bell and Mike Summerby told me about, fantastic coach, great on the players, develops, develops the quality of players. I says, but the second one, which... I don't particularly enjoy. It's what Mike Shannon, Asa Hartford, Dave Watson told me about because Malcolm got rid of those when he came back. 
And I said, I need a relationship the first, with the first one, not the second one. And I said, if you don't want me to come back, I won't come back. Not a problem. And I think he enjoyed again, honestly, very similar to what I had with Amma Erdogan. You know, they could see my focus. They could see what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to go, I wasn't going to go anywhere for a free ride. You know, I, still wanted, I was still aspirational. And then did a deal and what, paid uh, £235,000 for me. And with the currency exchange, um, the, I think the, 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 the currency exchange would change in the benefit of the dollar. They were going to get more. The Cosmos were going to get me mon- the money back, but more because the change of exchange. And I said, no. I said, if I've got a deal with Man City, I said, I'll tell you what. So they were going to prepare to pay £250,000 to get me to come back. Because in that time I'd been away, the market had gone like that. We'd, bought, we'd paid Mac, uh, Preston £750,000 for Michael Robinson. We played Wolves £1.4 for Steve Daly. We were, we'd, we'd paid silly money at that stage. And I said, no. I, says, uh, so I'd got, I said to... Uh, uh, the, the, to Peter Swells, I'll ring the I'll ring the Cosmos, and all because I've had a good two years out of me. Won the championship first year, semi-final second year, good two years out of me. I said the, the fee is 150,000 pounds. I said I'm going to tell him that. So I rang a guy called Rafael de la Sierra at the Cosmos, and I said Rafael, I've got one more year left of my contract. I says the only club I'll come back to in the UK is Manchester City, and the price is 150,000 pounds. I said you've had two good years out of me. You paid 235. With the currency exchange, you're getting easy getting your money back. And I says, if you don't fancy it, I'll come back for me next year. I'll just play me like the last year, that's not a problem. And he came back to me and said, right, get them to sell me a telex. In those days, there was no emails, scanning, there was no how to sign a telex. So I just went up here as well, sell a telex for £150,000 and we can do the deal. Uh, get Man City sorted out, then we can sort our own negotiations. And then did that and we came back. But the only, the only problem when I came back uh, was... Before I left, we had a team full of internationals. When I came back, it was like a crash. And I was like the mother hen. You know, you had Steve Daly, 19, Tommy Caton, 17, um, Ray Ranson, 1920, Dave Bennett, 1819. Uh, there was about six of the lads with, with, with babes, you know, and then my, Mike Robinson, who was still finding his way, even though a big, big fee. Steve Daly still finding his way, even though it was a big fee. So we had a real mixed bag there. Um, so it was a hard job. When you came back to City, you said that the average age of the squad was was too low. Was the was had the quality dropped off as well? Yeah, the, the quality because they were naive. There was a lot. Of, there wasn't enough experience. I mean, a perfect example. Malcolm was great on his tactics, but Malcolm was tactics and like we had Summerby, Bell, and that group. They were so talented. You could give them instructions and they absorb the instructions straight away. But the younger kids, it takes a bit longer to absorb. It takes a bit longer to develop them and to get the, the information across. Um, and I remember one one little session at uh, Main at uh, Platt Lane. We're all standing together in the middle of the pitch, and Malcolm was saying, "Right, I want to do set this set this uh, exercise up, this training exercise. When you do this, that, that, blah, 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 blah. Right, let's go and do it." So we, we broke off to go to our positions, and young Tony Henry was just was just jogging alongside him. And I said, "Right, Tony, do you understand what Malcolm Malcolm's after?" He said, "Dennis, I haven't got an effing clue." You know, so that's the challenge that Malcolm had in those days. You know, and then a, a really fascinating chapter of your life for me is when you come back as a director. What made you do that, and what made you want to get involved? Well, I didn't really particularly choose it. We, we, um, I, part of my business was video conference production, uh, video production, and also hospitality. So we just developed the, the Platt Lane stand with the, the, uh, the new boxes with the, the balconies. So I took a box. I took a box on and. Um, Right, no problem. What year was this when you when you took that on? 95, 96, yeah. when the Platt Lane boxes behind the girl which first developed. I think it was like 95 or 96, I can't recall. Um, so then all of a sudden I met, I met one game and um, Jeff Durbin, who was a commercial manager, said, really pop dances John and David Macon downstairs because they just put five million investment into the club. Uh, Stephen Buller put five million. They'd put five million into the club. And um, would you pop down and have a chat? Yeah, OK, no problem. So I had a good chat with them, but my views on football, but just general informal. And then I was organising, prior to 96 Euros, I was organising hospitality uh, at Wembley for, on behalf of Umbro. And in one of the games, a guest of Umbro was David Bernstein, who worked with Pentland Industries in, in, the, in the retail trade, so he's a guest of Umbro. And I got, got chatting with David just to, to, before the game, because he was a director at the time, he'd been brought on as a director. Um, and we, we hit it off great, you know, really well. And, and he said, would you mind coming down to London and have a bit of a further chat? Because 
I mean, before the game, it wasn't appropriate. There was a lot of guests around. So I said, fine. So I went down to London. I was on business. I met him, had a coffee uh, in town, in the city. And uh, just got chatting and then left it. And then all of a sudden, get David and uh, John Macon said, uh, David Macon and John Wardle said, uh, just met up with me. He said, would you, would you be our nominee on the board? I said, what's a nominee? What does that mean? You know, I was I had three small businesses, I had three small children. I was very much flying. My businesses were just developing nicely. And the kids were coming on, you know. So I was quite, quite, uh, quite happy with uh, with my lot at that time. So again, I went to uh, to see Ruben Kay, my advisor. Just just talk me through this. What 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 would this mean? What what does that mean? Like, again, you know, I need to understand what I need to do. So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. And he explained, and because Ruben had been working with the Manchester City directors, Manchester United directors, and knew all about that, the book being in the board, in the boardroom, and he says you'll be a different class. He says you'll be, you'll, you'll murder it. Oh, I said okay. So I goes back to John Wall. I says okay, I'll, I'll do it for you. And then that's it. Become a director. And then I always remember my first, my first board meeting. Um, and any other business? I said yes, I've got one. I says. Our lines of communication to our fans is appalling. I says, I get a feeling that people can ring a number at this club, somebody will pick them up, answer the phone at this end, and they'll have gossip, speculation, untruths, opinions. I says, we've got to get a, a complete, honest and open relationship with our supporters. I says, because they're going to save us in the short term, because we, we're on the way down to the third level. And I brought in Chris Bird. I met Chris on a couple of occasions on, P, on, on PR occasions, and I thought he was aggressive. I thought he was he was uh, progressive and aggressive, which we needed because when I went to the Man City, the, the, I felt the place was a shambles. As an organisation, it was a shambles. Um, we had some nice people in the organisation, but nice people who weren't aspirational. You know, they were happy to run a corner shop. Well, I wanted Manchester City to be where we are now. You know, the growth and the development, and the, we had to be aspirational. We had to. We had to make some tough decisions and we made a lot of change. And Chris came in and he was our, he was our great troubleshooter. First of all, he was a troubleshooter in the organisation. And secondly, he was great with the press. He knew what was happening, who was doing what was happening. And it helped us prepare ourselves to get that, that what I call the two things to run a business is unity, stability and team spirit. Unity in the, in the business, stability amongst it, the business and team spirit amongst the people in the organisation. And it took us a couple of years because we went down to the third level. Uh, and when we went down to the third level, I said to David Bernstein, start the season, I said, we have to galvanise everybody both on and off the pitch. And there was two things I wanted to do. And I said, first of all, I want to put together a, a scheme whereby our, branch, our branches could uh, request someone go to their monthly branch meetings. And I think we had about just over 80 branches at the time. Someone from the club go to their branch meetings, monthly branch meetings, and get the... The, the, the understanding of what we're trying to do and get them to support us because we needed their patience, their support otherwise we wouldn't get this thing off the ground because we were carrying so much debt from the previous regime, from Francis Lee's regime we're carrying so much debt players on over, over, over inflated wages, not contributing I remember there was one time again, not long after I'd been there I watched the people sitting behind the dugout, not even involved on the subs bench and there's about £14,000 a week going out Nothing. And don't forget, in 1997, eight, fourteen thousand pound a week was a lot, a lot of money. Um, so there's a lot of washing through of things, and we had one year to get out, because otherwise, to try and get back to the championship level, we then had to get the players out that we didn't want. We had to carry the debt, and we had to be successful. And thankfully, Gillingham, Joe got us in. Got Joe there, Joe Roll there who'd been down that level before, he was used to that level, fantastic uh, ability with that kind of players, got us through Gillingham, which was a real... Uh, but the second thing I did, I said, what we also want to do, Chairman, um, I want to say to the players that they'll only get paid bonuses at the end of the month if we're in the top six. Because I know what their contracts are, and I met up with Joe, Joe backed me, Joe Royal, and David was a bit nervous, David Bernstein, we met the players' committee, and they explained, you know that you're all on wages far in excess of this league yeah. so bonuses there should be when you're at the top of this league and I knew if, we, if we're in the top six we're at least going to make the playoffs and then due respect the lads they backed it so we had supporters on board 
we had the playing squad on board. Uh, we now sort of had to drive through players that, because um, we'd accumulated so many players in the squad. I remember going to see Joe Roller Platt Lane one day. I walked through the office, he started, he said, Dennis, I just can't believe this. I just started laughing. He said, why? He said, I've just had a young lad come in here and on his training kit, he's got number 66. He said, we were carrying so many players. We accumulated so many players without rhyme the reason. You know, I just couldn't get it through my head. With, and a lot of players who wouldn't make any contribution to the, to the cause. Well, there was a lack of quality as well as too many numbers, wasn't there? Far too many. We had, we had, a, we had a revolving door of uh, Georgians, Scandinavians and Germans who coming in, get the money and disappearing and not making any contribution really, not really long-term contribution. Um, so we had a, a lot of strong words. It's probably harder to get rid of players who aren't doing anything than actually bringing players in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, because quite understandable, the players have got good contracts and they're quite entitled to sit there and say, well, this is, that's what you offered me, I'm quite happy to, to, to keep it. Um, so you, you have to understand from a playing point of view their thought process as well. I mean, you mentioned Chris Bird as one example of something that you did. What other kind of really practical measures did you do to, to, to change the culture of the well, organisation? Chris, Chris changed the, the Junior Blues organisation because we were, with Junior Blues was just... Every, every young kid was a junior blue and Chris changed it I think it was uh, age 0 to 5 out of 4 then 6 to 14 so we, we then get a different strategy for the different age groups you know and then we had, a, we had a great relationship with the press um, so in, in essence there was that, that main source and operationally there was people Chris was going through assessing who was making a contribution who wasn't because we had a, we had a, um, a catering operation going in the chairman's suite Lovely food for the people who went there, but we weren't making, we were making no money, mm. you know, and, and, and probably losing a bit in essence. So there's a lot of loss making things that were just ingrained into the system off the pitch, you know. So we had to get all that, we had to negotiate new contracts. We had to get people, I mean, remember Alistair McIntosh came, he said to, our, to us uh, one day, you know, our best, fax, our best uh, salesman is a fax machine. People actually, actually requesting things rather than we going out and knocking on doors. You know, and, and being a salesman myself in, in my own business, you know, you've got to get out and knock on doors. I've been knocking on doors for 30 years, you know, so and that's how you have to do. You have to be pro, pro, progressive um, and really promote yourself in, in the best way possible. You know, new contracts for, for a kit. And the, the biggest challenge we had, um, because when we came in, 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 on, this, on the docks was a possible new stadium after the Commonwealth Games, so... And, and I said to be put, where's, the, where's it going to be built? They said, uh, Bezik. I says, where, where, where's that? I hadn't got a clue where Bezik was, I'd never heard of it. Um, so then that was way, way down the line, and therefore we had 2002 Commonwealth Games, 2003 moving to the new stadium. So we had to get the club through the, the, the bad times on a financially strong, better footing, not a strong footing, but certainly a better one, and then get into the new stadium in the Premier League. So that was the for the first time in my life, I had a long-term strategy. That's what, what influenced decisions in the period building up to that. How crucial was that promotion from the third tier, the old oh. division two? Without that, financially, what would have been the situation? Oh, we, we, the following season, well, the following closely, we would have had a fire sale. We would have been selling players, literally giving players away just to get them off the books. Get, and we would have had, we've had to do that. Uh, and thankfully, you know, John Wall and David Megan, who to this day have still not been given the credit uh, for what they did, what, what they should have had. I mean, they put 25 million of their own money because they'd sold JD Sports to Black's Leisure, and they put 25 million, around about 25 million of their own money, over a period into the club just to to fill holes while we were getting the finances sorted out and getting the the, the, the quality of the staff sorted out, the, the, the playing staff, the, the operational side of the staff, and they did all that. And then David Bernstein with his fantastic chairmanship, you know, and then uh, that, that's how we, that's how we in the short term. Uh, and we got Jim Cassell uh, in the academy, and again, Jim's still not got his uh, his, his credit that he, he fully deserves, and he still holds a record for the amount of players that have played first team in his tenure. I think it was 41. We had four players in the World Cup this year. We had nine players at the Euros two years ago that came through the academy. So it's still not been fully recognised, in my view. That promotion from Division One. I don't think many of the fans expected that. I think a, a period of you know stabilising would have been good enough. But Joe brings in Granville, Kennedy. The left hand side improves dramatically, and we managed to go up automatically. I mean, that was an that was a great, exciting time, wasn't well, it? Great because Joe gave us two consecutive promotions. You know, and he brought the right players, right place, right time. You know, and that's that's a quality of a manager. 
He recognised the, the, the things we wanted, uh, and he went out and got them. You know, again, because of John and David's investment, we're able to do these things over and above the initial budget. You know, the uh, because the fans were still were still coming in. I remember my first year um, when we we uh, um, we'd gone down to the third level. We played Blackpool first game of the season in the third level, and I was in Hollywood with my, my kids in Barbados. And I remember ringing. I had a, I had a phone bill of £147 the week before because I missed the first game I was away because I pre-booked the, uh, the holiday. And um, just ringing up, ringing up Chris Bird, ringing up Joe Raw, ringing up David Bernstein, what's happening, what are we doing, how's it going? And I remember we had uh, 28,000 people at that game and we, I think we won 2-0, I think it was. Uh, and I thought, great, we've a bit of a, a breather there. We've got started, you know, and that was important to get a good start going uh, and we we, hemmed, we we stood a little bit. I think in October we were twelfth, but by, by the end of January, beginning of February, we were sixth. We just got broken the top six around about February time, I think it was. You know, and then drilling them in the end, and and then up again. You know, we got another great great season, uh, finishing black at uh, Blackburn. I always remember that that year. You know, up and down, just not just on the fringes of the playoffs, and not quite making it. And then obviously we broke in the top six, and then. The Blackburn game, I was sitting next to David Bernstein. I says, uh, before the game, I said to the chairman, I says, what are we doing? If we, if we win this game, what, what are we celebrating? This is a week before the game. How are we going to celebrate? Oh, Dennis, he says, I can't speak about it. I'm too nervous. I, I don't want to talk about it. I'm tempting fate. I don't want to talk about it. So we're sitting together at the Blackburn game, and after we scored our third goal, I nudged him in the ribs. I said, chairman, what are we doing tonight? Oh, yes, 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 we can do it now, we can do it now. So we organised uh, in the Midland Hotel, a room at the Midland Hotel where we could all go and celebrate promotion. We go down the following year from the Premier League and Joe Royal is, is sacked. What, what were the reasons for that? Exactly the same reason as, as the first time round. You know, we needed, we, we, again, we had a, a one year to get out of it again because we'd, we'd then over-invested into the squad again to, with Premiership players. And there were different kind of players because we had Paolo Wanshop, Alfie Inga Harland, George Weir, different kind of players. And Joe wasn't as comfortable with those players as he was with the players from a different kind, with being, with being respectful to the players as well. Um, and, you know, we we'd got to, we, after 10 games, I remember David Bernstein sent to me after 10 games in the Premier, we'd got 14 points. Um, and David Bernstein says, you know, Dennis, I think we're going to be OK here. We didn't win a game for eight games. Mm. Uh, we dropped right down the pan, and um, but again we looked at it and we thought, you know, Joe's done okay. Let's see if we can give him our support. You know, he got the dreaded vote at conference, but we did issue a statement because we, we were coming under pressure. We wanted to build back a bit of a, um, the team spirit, a bit of the unity, the belief that everybody was together. Uh, to say that, you know, we've got to support Joe, blah blah. But you know, we never got going and again and again. The same problem arose. We were carrying debt, going down. We got one year to get out. Again, because again, that that journey to the to the uh, the new stadium, we had to get that journey up and running again, before, so we could get back one year to get back out because we were in the stadium in 2003. We needed S- Premier League football when moving to the new stadium. Correct, yeah. absolutely, that was the target. And uh, we, I mean, we didn't just go down; we were relegated by eight points, so it wasn't even close. No, it was a poor season. It wasn't even close, you know. So again, we had had a board meeting. I I had appendicitis just near the end of the game of the season. And, and I had to go for the penis, penix operation, uh, the Alex and, and Cheadle, and uh, they had a board. The lads had a board meeting, the directors, and came out with talking about. It and I says, and, and Kevin said, Kevin Keane's name came up. So well, that's not a problem. I says, I'll ring Kevin. So I rang Kevin, and I said, What do you think? Oh, he says, I won't talk to you until Joe's not there. I said, It's unfair. He said, Not a problem. I said, I'll go back. So I kept on at him, on him. I says, Well, let's just talk. Let's just talk because. We still hadn't made a decision about Joe. There was so much conjecture about should we, shouldn't we, shouldn't we, shouldn't we. Um, and we spoke, and, and he said, well, once, once you've made it, you make a decision on Joe first, and I'll give you my decision, which was very fair. Kevin was very fair. And uh, we, the board spoke about it and said, OK, well, let's take our chances. You know that Kevin will, will come. And unfortunately, Joe had, Joe had, to, had to go. Um, and then we went and approached Kevin, what was David. the appeal of Kevin Keegan? Mr. Motivator. He can energise. Mr. Motivator. We need a Mr. Motivator. Um, you know, we need, again, one year, and he was a motivator. And I'd, I'd known him since he was 75, 76, when, uh, when we were together in the England team. 
And he said then, he said, you never stay anywhere long, more than four to five years. He says, you, you, the time's running. He's never stayed anywhere longer than four to five years. But in the, in the shorter term, he's done the job. Um, and when, we were, when people knew he was coming, I got calls saying, oh, you'll be in trouble. He'll want to run this, he'll want to run that. He'll, he'll throw his dummy at the pram. I says, this, I says, listen, let him get us in the Premier League in the short term. I'll handle the bit afterwards. We'll handle the bit afterwards. Let's get out. That's the most important. Is getting to our new stadium. And um, David Burns and I drove up to Kevin, up to see Kevin, because I knew where he lived up in the northeast. And um, we had a great con- a meeting. And he, he decided. He said yes. I'll, I'll deal. I'll go. And then from then on, we were on a, we were on a whistle stop. I mean, it was like 100 mile an hour. Kevin went this. We wouldn't have got players like Peter Schmeichel, Nicholson Elka, Ali Benabia, Ile Berkovic. Yeah, we wouldn't have got those quality of players without Kevin Keegan. How was he doing it? Just through his reputation in the game? His, or his, his image, his, his reputation. Contacts, he's had um, Arthur Cox, who was my assistant uh, coach at Sunderland with Bob Stokoe. So I yeah. knew Arthur as well. And Arthur, at one stage, when I was leaving Newc- um, leaving Man City almost, before I signed a new contract, he was at Newcastle and he had a conversation about me going to Newcastle. So I knew Arthur pretty well, Wiley Old Fox, and him and Kevin were a good partnership. And uh, that was it, you know, we just got them in and they cracked on quickly and we got players in place and all of a sudden we were flying again. And I always remember that when we got promoted, I mean, even speaking to supporters now and we're going on their branch meetings, they always remember that that year with Kevin Keegan in the championship fantastic. was just fantastic. Scored more, 100 goals, I think it was. We got fantastic, the, the atmosphere was f- f- uh, just phenomenal. Um, and then we went in there and I always remember we played Barcelona in a friendly game here 34,000 in the new stadium because it was a test event so we couldn't go to full capacity and just looked around the stadium Barcelona walking out and he had and everybody's got blue shirts in the stadium all the replica shirts and I thought that's where we should be yeah and then we finished ninth of course in the yeah, first that's season, right. which is a decent finish decent isn't finish it? yeah no problem and, and Kevin just fantastic what about the Robbie Fowler signing because I know that was one Kevin. strange one Kevin just Kevin Whilst he's got his strengths, his, his weaknesses is he, he falls out with love with players very quickly. He gets uh, gets players in, and then if they don't perform, he just wants to churn them. He just wants to move them on. And we, we didn't have the money to keep turning, buying players and move them on after a year, eighteen months. And to be perfect, Robbie was Robbie wasn't fully fit. You know, he had this bad knee injury. Well, we did a, deal, a good deal with with Leeds, and that's where Kevin fell out with David Bernstein because David was trying to do the deal, and Kevin said, "No, I want him. I want him." And, David didn't think the deal was right for us, and based on his injury record, you mean injuries yeah. and what we were looking for the team, and, and Kevin wanted him. And, and whilst he was a fan, one of the best finishers I've ever seen, I used to go to training and watch him. He was unbelievable. Him and Nicholas and I off front, which is phenomenal. Um, but you could see he he lacked a yard of pace. And I even after the first we got him in in, in, uh, in one season, the start of the next season, I said to Kevin, I says. Robbie's commitment is great. His stamina is great. He just he just lost that little bit of real sharpness. I said, why don't we just pay for a co- conditioning coach for two year, for two weeks before season starts and get him in great shape, and then he's ready for the start of the season. And Kevin says, I'll speak to Robbie. And he came back. No, Robbie says he's going to do some sharpening work himself before the season. Okay. After a month, you could see Robbie wasn't, and Kevin pulled him out of the squad. Um, so. It's sort of 03-04, Keegan, the, the Keegan tenure starts to lose its way slightly. The, the signings seem to drop down a level to me. Tarnat, Bosvelt, this kind of player. Decent players, but we're, not, we're, not going to help us kick we're on. Plugging, we were still plugging holes, you see. We hadn't, we hadn't got rid of the debt. We were still carrying... It's really it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, a, to make the analysis because we couldn't, we couldn't start putting salaries up. We, we, didn't have a, uh, we couldn't stop putting the, the ticket prices up. Um, the salaries were going up to get people in on a short-term basis. The commercial um, position of Manchester City wasn't exciting at that time. Uh, the market hadn't, hadn't exploded. The global market hadn't exploded. So it was a real, it was a real uh, balance in the, the, uh, the scales kind of thing. It was like one, two steps forward and one step back, and two steps forward or three steps forward and two steps back. Um, you know, we, we keep moving players out to get the money in. It really was a balancing act, and it was just—it was like it was like you were drowning, but you're trying to 
keep bailing bailing out every so often. It was a real difficult time. He seemed to be chasing older players who had achieved a lot in the game, but were perhaps coming to the end of the career. Do you think? Yeah, but, but we, he was doing it for the right reasons because he reckoned short, we need short term short termism, real short termism. But you know, some some of the players produced, some didn't. You know, and and. Uh, and that was the real problem. We just weren't producing, and then you could see Kevin was losing patience. And after two seasons, I remember David Bernstein said to me, because he was signed a four-year deal, show me offer Kevin an extension. You know, I says chairman, he won't be interested. I keep telling me he won't stay longer than four to five years. He's never done it anyway. He doesn't. His his um, strength is short-termism, motivation, energizing. But then when the energy starts draining, he get, he he drains. He drains his own energy. Um, and Arthur Cox had left. So he was exposed a little bit there. Um, so there was a lot of things. We were all firefighting in a lot of areas. And then what, what would you say is, in the entire time that you were a director, what would be the best, single best transfer that the club made in terms of the impact, value for money, etc.? I would think Nicholas and Elka. Yeah. I would think Nicholas uh, came and gave us a real boost, you know, a real give us a world superstar um, who produced... And he was such a nice man. I mean, people give criticism about his brothers, this and the brothers that. We never had any problems with him, you know, really in the early stages, you know. Um, the big problem he had was Kevin. Um, Kevin had was Nicholas and Elgin and Robbie didn't get on. So he had that challenge and he didn't really get as much as he possibly could out of, out of those two in, in, in the short term because, you know, the best game for me is when we played United here. Because Kevin used to be whinging about new stadiums, no atmosphere when the players come out. You need to get this... the uh, the fans in the stadium earlier. I says, Kevin, let me tell you two things. First of all, we've moved a new stadium. We've got everybody who sat in Main Road had the same pals sitting next to them for 20, 15, 20 years. They're familiar. They're relaxed. All of a sudden, a new stadium. They're sat in, They're sitting around 30, 40, 50 strangers. So they're a little bit, um, bit, bit shy, introverted, waiting to see what's going to happen. And certainly be perfect on this is the quality of the... If, the pitch, the playing surface, what's happening on there. So it's, there's two issues that you've got to manage. If you get those two right, there won't be a problem because we need the time to settle in, to familiarise themselves, the, the fans familiarise themselves with the stadium and also the quality of performance. And we played Man United here. We beat them 4-1 when Robbie scored, when um, um, Sean Wright Phillips came off the line, wrapped the fourth goal in under the side of the crossbar and the place was rocking. Yeah. And Kevin sent me after that. He said, I see what you mean, Dennis. So he knew... You know, he knew. Uh, if we get it right here, which we have, you can see the atmosphere now. But we had to do all the hard yards. So he announces he's going to leave at the end of the season, and the decision's taken for, for Stuart Pearce to come in. Initially, he has quite a good impact, but then things go well, what quite happened, badly because wrong. Because he came in the February, so he didn't, all he had to do was. Um, I, I'd been round with him uh, to support his bunch meetings and with um, experienced players being in these meetings. and he was well. He was simply well, well liked by the supporters, by the by the senior players who were going to be influential in the dressing room. Uh, and it was February when Kevin left, so the transfer window had gone. So we needed we needed to get the end of the season. So I said to Chairman, I said, recommend as an interim manager to the end of the season, and then let's take it. As it happens, he, he had a good end of season. We well. we, all, we would have gotten to Europe if Robbie Fowler hadn't missed the last minute penalty against uh, against Middlesbrough. So, Richie, there was, there was not an awful lot available. We, didn't, we, we couldn't go and approach other managers with great money because we didn't have great money. Um, so we just gave him, gave him the job. And he struggled. He desperately struggled with um, rather than having to bring his own people in and, in and implement his own ideas, whereas the previous half a season, he just kept Kevin's ideas going. Yeah. Um, and he, he did struggle. Whether we didn't give him enough support, we didn't have financial support, but... You know, and he did struggle, and I think the second season was even worse. I think at the end of the season, we didn't score a goal for ten games at home or something yeah. silly. Well, we were knocked out of the cups by Doncaster and Chesterfield, and uh, we scored just ten league goals at home all season, and none after New Year's Day. I mean, that's a pretty well, damning, that was, you know that was record. that was an issue which we had to go. But by this time, to be perfect, David Bernstein had left, which was a very sad a couple of years earlier. Uh, John had taken on board, and there was a bit. Of, the one thing which we had in the boardroom when I first came on was unity, stability, that team spirit amongst the, amongst the guys. That started. There was one or two people who were after their own... Um, I mentioned Alistair McIntosh was trying to run the place. Uh, and him and I didn't see eye to eye in a lot of cases, a lot of instances. Um, and I probably should have left. I should have, probably should have resigned a year or so before. 
But my wife even said to me, you know, because my responsibility was also for the academy, and I worked on a regular basis with Jim Cassell, and I felt an awful lot of loyalty um, to Jim. And my wife said that, you know, said nobody knows football better than you, and then you, you've got a great relationship with Jim Cassell, and you're very successful as an academy. You know, why should you leave? So I, I stayed on it probably a year or so long, uh, too long, because I was being I was being sidelined by uh, by McIntosh. You talk with great fondness about um, David Bernstein. Do you think he's one of the most important figures in, in the club's recent history? Well, in that period he was. I yeah. think everything, everything in life is about timing. And timing, as far as Manchester City was concerned, we needed a figurehead. We needed a genuine professional figurehead uh, who was, who'd been in businesses. He'd been on, on the board of directors of uh, many in the big PLC companies, Pentland, uh, Ted Baker, Farah, you know, a lot of those big companies. Um, and he then you got the, the structure in place, um, and you need a structure. You need a good quality structure with good, good, good quality people doing what they're good at in the structure. Mm. And you talk about Macintosh there. What was it? What 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 kind of set alarm bells ringing with you that perhaps he was? Well, when he, when he started, he'd invite me to certain football meetings, but then he'd try and do them himself. You know, you, like me else, people at one stage people thought I was going to be chairman. You know, I think. When Francis Lee left, when David Bernstein left, I said, no chance. I do what I'm good at. You, know, you have to do what you're good at. And uh, when he first came in, he did well because he was a financial controller, dealing with what I call inanimate objects, facts and figures. Yeah. Uh, but dealing with people is a different thing. I didn't have that, he didn't have that skill, but he thought he had. Um, so it was, just a, just a, it was a split which was getting wider and wider. He yeah. was somebody who was sidelining me on certain meetings. You know, there's one time... Uh, on reserve team games, used to have the reserve team games, and I meet, used to meet up with John and, and Alistair and the manager before the game and have a little chat about the reserve team. And one time I came into the, the Etihad and I walked into uh, Alistair's room, and there was Stuart Pierce, John Wardle, and Alistair McIntyre sat, sat there, and I hadn't been invited to the meeting. And uh, John said, Just give us a couple of minutes, Dennis. I said, Okay. I should have walked out then. Yeah. I should have walked then. Um, and then and, and, and resigned. Um, but again, my loyalty to the club, my loyalty to the uh, to Jim Cassell and the academy, just stayed on a bit longer. Talking to you about your life and career it is so rich and, and varied, and probably what, never what you imagined when you first started playing as a youngster. Do you have any any regrets at all, or has it just been one, you know, incredible ride for you? I think it's been one. One fantastic journey, especially when I see what we have here now, Robins. We're sat here at the Etihad campus. I'm looking across out the window and I can see the stadium there. I can see the, 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 all the facilities that we've got here. And I'm just so pleased that every, everything I've, every decision I've made, you know, staying on at school, getting the opportunity to play for Sunderland youth team, winning the 73 Cup win, leaving Sunderland at the right time, having a great four years at Manchester City, leaving there at the right time, had a fantastic two years in New York, learning about the development of how, how sport and business uh, in, 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 interlinks, how they develop together, how one needs the other. And it's just been a fantastic um, experience. And coming back here and, and seeing how Malcolm Allison looked after the kids and, and where the problems were there, understanding about the academy, then leaving and, and starting my new businesses, three, as I said, property business and in, in retail travel agency, a video and conference production business and, and running those getting my kids going and they've got three fantastic kids and the responsibility of my wife's taken over when I've been all over the place um, supporting the Manchester City as a director I remember one trip we went down to uh, MK Don's Milton Keynes branch and um, I did my, my day in the office left the office at five came home had a sandwich jumped on the on the motor with the M6 about six o'clock well you know what the M6 like is that time got out to the uh, MK Don M- MK uh, branch Quarter to nine, did an hour and a half Q and A, signing autographs. Jumped, jumped on the uh, the motorway. Quarter past half past ten, got home half past twelve. You know, and, and that was something to see how happy the, the supporters are. And I'm still visiting branches now. And and that things, all the hard yards that we did on the accumulation of, of 97 to sort of 2003, and got everybody making making difficult decisions. You know, some good people have changed them. Um, I love uh, business phrases, and if you can't change the people, you've got to change the people, unfortunately. Uh, make some hard decisions, uh, but look where we are now. If you hadn't done the hard yards, and all my decisions have made in my, my, my football, 
my business career and my directorship career. You know, I can't, I can't, uh, can't say there's much. I would like to have done a bit more uh, as a director near the end when I felt there was a, uh, when I was being sidelined. I probably should have done a bit more then. Thank you so much to Dennis for being so candid. And if you like what you heard today, then make sure you subscribe wherever it is that you do your podcast listening. We've got plenty more of these for you. I've been speaking to Joe Royal and Andy Morrison about our glorious promotion campaigns in 99 and 2000. Paul Lake about his injury troubles and battle with depression. Francis Lee, who is one of the best players we've ever had and who later returned as chairman. And Brian Marwood, who has played a central role in the club's recent success. They're all available now, wherever it is you do your listening. And don't forget to visit mancity.com and download the official Man City app for all the latest news and features. Thanks for taking the time to listen and hopefully you'll join me again soon.